Well, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Today, we are uh, finishing our series called The Problem with the Bible. This is part five. Today, the question I want to tackle is, is the Bible racist? And as we start that out, I want you to think uh, for, for a minute about some of the people that are closest to you, your uh, spouse, maybe your friends, your family. And I want to ask you, do you have certain stories that sort of define your relationship? These would be the kind of stories that probably come up from now and uh, now and then the kind of stories that you repeat, you laugh about, or you cry about, uh, but they come up um, over the years, kind of over and over and over because they're pivotal stories in your history. So I'll give you a little example. My wife and I have um, these friends. Their names are Lori and Tony. And uh, we got to know know them. First, because when my wife uh, started her teaching career about 10, 11 years ago, um, her and Lori became friends. And Lori was one of her first mentors. And they started hanging out a little bit and getting a little bit closer. And over time, as they became friends, they kind of dragged their husbands, me and Tony, uh, together. And we started to interact and we started to become friends. And then along the way, we have these different moments that just are kind of memorable and, and different sort of stories that we'll tell or things that we will um, remember together and, and laugh about and talk about. So we, uh, after a while, got invited up to their cottage. Once they have a cottage and they invited us to come for a few days in the summer. And uh, at the end of the, the time together, we took a picture of the four of us together to kind of remember um, this time that we had come together. And then the following year, it kind of became a tradition. We started going up there each and every summer. And as we look back on those pictures, we have little stories to tell about the different things that happened along the way. So the first summer is just the four of us. The, the next summer, the summer after that, we came up and we had just got a dog. And so we have now a picture of the four of us that summer with our dog. And we remember, remember that that was the first year you guys had your dog and you brought him up and he was just a puppy, but he cried the entire time because he was in a weird place and he was still getting used to us and he was getting used to them. And so the dog kept us up all night long and we were so tired, but we had a great weekend together. And then a year or so after that, um, we, we have the picture and it's now the four of us and our dog and our first child, our son. Joe. And it's like, oh, remember the summer that, that Joe came up. That was the first summer that you had Joe. And it wasn't the dog that kept us up crying all night. It was Joe that kept us up crying all night because he was just a baby and he was in a new place and all that kind of stuff. And we have this progression uh, of different moments in, in our history as a couple. And then a few years after that, a few years ago, I decided I was going to build a deck in my backyard. The problem is I don't know how to build a deck. And so I went to Tony, who I knew had some experience and, and knew how to do these kind of things. I said, Tony, can you help build me a deck? And Tony said, I would love to help you, but I need you to know I'm not an expert in deck building, but I'll promise you two things if we build this deck together. Number one, when it's finished, it's going to look great. I, I can't promise you how we're going to get there, but when we're finished, it's going to look great. And number two, it's going to be level. Obviously very important if you're building something like a deck. So I don't know how we're going to do it every step of the way, but we're going to figure it out. And in the end, it's going to look good and it's going to be level. And so uh, Tony came over and we started building this deck. And on the first day, our job was to dig these holes for the posts that we were going to cement in concrete. Um, and that would be the foundation for our whole deck. And so we rented this big auger that would help us dig the big holes. And we got all the concrete bags and we we're going to fill it. And, you know, you add the water and, and everything. 
everything comes together. So that was our first task. And on the first day, Tony comes over. We got the big auger. We go out and we start digging these holes. And during that, that day, it started raining. And not just raining, but I mean, it was raining cats and dogs. It was ferociously raining. But we had already started and we already rent this machine that was helping us to dig the holes. And so we decided we're going to keep going, even though it's raining and it's freezing and it's really hard work and everything around us is now completely mud and we're getting stuck in the mud and we're, 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 we're walking through it as best we can. We're getting totally covered. We're totally soaked. We're totally freezing, but we kept going and we were digging the holes. And as we dug the holes and we started putting the posts in with the concrete, it was raining so much we didn't have to add water to the concrete with the hose because uh, the, the whole holes were filling up with rainwater. And it was just nuts. And as we're kind of trudging through it, there was this, this one moment where, where Tony kind of, you know, we're, we're uh, waddling through and, and making our way through the mud. And he accidentally fell into one of the holes and, and we had to kind of pull him up because the hole was so deep. And by the end of it, we're just absolutely soaked, absolutely caked in mud. Well, the next day, uh, Tony comes back and the weather's a little bit better and we start framing in the deck. And as we start to frame it in, but we haven't got everything, you know, the entire floorboards put on or the railing put on and, and, and you know, I took a misstep and I fell right off the deck. And, you know, by the end of two or three days, we were kind of worn out. We were tired. Uh, we had each bled at some point. We had a couple of bumps and bruises. We had been freezing cold. But finally, we get the deck together. And when the deck finally comes together after a few days of, of blood, sweat, and tear, Tony grabs the level. We get to the, on top of the deck. We go, man, this looks good. And he puts down the level and he goes, it's perfectly level. And this has become one of those stories in our relationship that we kind of bring up over and over. We joked it. Remember the time you fell in the hole and I fell off the deck and it rained cats and dogs and we just journeyed through it and we made it happen. But at the end of the day, the, look, the, the deck looks great and it is level. So now, years later, again, it's one of those things we, we bring that story up from time to time. We laugh about it. Um, or we just, you know, like Tony will show up and he'll grab a level and put it on the deck. Still level. Or he'll come to me one time when we've met somewhere and he'll go, hey, how's the deck? Is it still level? And really, that's not about whether or not the deck is level. It's because that story and our other stories and the pictures that we have at the cottage and the things that we've been through has become those stories that define our relationship. That's what it's really about. And if you think about the stories that you have with the people that you love the most, Again, could be your family, your friends, your spouse. You can probably look back and you've probably got some of those stories too, right? Hey, it's the story we went, uh, as a family, we went camping, but then it started raining as soon as we got there and we only had time to get one tent up. And so we were all huddled in one tent and then we forgot our food outside and the animals got into our food. And then when it finally stopped raining, we realized we didn't have enough food for the weekend. But then Uncle Fred went out fishing and he got so many fish that we could eat fish for the whole weekend. And it was, it was one of those, and it just becomes those memories and it becomes part of how you explain who you are are as a family, who you are as friends, what brought you together, and some of the values that you hold together. And we tell those stories and we laugh about them. Sometimes we cry about them. Sometimes the story, or remember when so-and-so got sick and the whole family showed up at the hospital and every day we were there for a month, but we were together and we figured it out. Those stories become stories that help define our relationships and help us attach uh, who we are with who belongs, who's part of this group, who's part of this family, who's part of this friend circle, and what are some of our values, and remember the time, and remember when we went through this, and remember how we got through this together. It helps you connect all of those pieces. 
And today what I want to talk a little bit about are what are the stories in the Bible that help us to think through who we are, what our values are, and who belongs. Because the tough part is there's certain parts of the Bible that we'll look at and we'll say, wow, this seems very exclusive, even racist. That there's just a small group of people that, that uh, belong, a small group of people that are favored. Everybody else is sort of put out there and, and are treated differently, even by God. And so I want to ask, does that make the Bible racist? And how do we deal with some of these passages? So some of them, in, for example, the book of Joshua. And we talked a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to get too much into the whole um, how do we deal with the violence in the Bible? Because we dealt with that three weeks ago and you can go back and listen to that sermon and, and you can listen to the podcast that we did uh, during that week. But we have these texts like Joshua 10:40, where it says, so Joshua on behalf of the Israelites conquered the whole region, the kings and people of the hill country, the Negev, the Western foothills, the mountain slopes. He completely destroyed everyone in the land, leaving no survivors, just as the Lord, the God of Israel had commanded. And it gets worse than that. Later in chapter 11, verse 12, it says, Joshua slaughtered all the other kings and their people, completely destroying them just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. And it goes on and on about how they plundered these lands and, and destroyed these people and pushed them out. We have other warnings like in Deuteronomy chapter 7, which tells the Israelite people not to intermarry with the other people in the Canaanite region. And there's a list of a whole bunch of people that would have been considered Canaanites and said, don't let your Sons and daughters marry these people. How do you deal with that? Hey, we're, we're the good guys who can exterminate the bad guys and don't intermarry with these people and we have to stay separate. In Leviticus, Leviticus is uh, one of these books where we get so many laws, so many prohibitions for the Israelite people. And there's a section um, where it goes through all kinds of different prohibitions. So uh, things around what you can eat and not eat. Like you can't eat pork, you can't eat shellfish, you can't eat certain insects, certain birds, mice, mole rats, owls. It goes on and on. There's all kinds of stuff that you're not supposed to eat. And by the way, some of that, I'm on board. Like I don't need to eat a mole rat. But when it comes to pork, a lot of us would go, what's the deal with that? They're not allowed to eat pork. You can't have bacon. I love bacon. Now, not everybody loves bacon. You might have reasons why you don't eat bacon. You might be a vegetarian for a whole number of reasons. Totally respect that. You might think that bacon's not all that good for you because it's really fatty and it's really salty in the way that it's prepared. That is all true. I'm on board. And yet, I still eat bacon. I still love bacon. And we have this prohibition, don't eat uh, pork. Don't eat certain birds. Don't eat certain insects. Don't eat certain all kinds of food. And not just that, there's prohibitions uh, around uh, how they're supposed to worship and not worship. There's prohibitions uh, around sex and, and uh, all kinds of different things in life. And in Leviticus 20, we get a little bit of a, an insight into why is it that God has told them to not do certain things and not to eat certain things. And here's the explanation. Leviticus chapter 20, I'll start reading in verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them. And the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit the, their land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make 
uh, for yourselves. Detest, you shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, uh, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So here's the reason. We have all these rules and all these laws. Here's what you're supposed to eat. Here's what you can't eat. Here's your rules for worship. Here's your rules for sex. Here's what you can't do. Why? Because I have called you to be different. And you saw that because I don't want you to be like the people that are going before you. I want you to be different than them. The things that they have done cause me to, 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 be, to detest them even. And you are supposed to be separate. You are supposed to be different. Now, this is an important um, principle for us to learn. And it's actually something that uh, we teach our children. Don't be like everybody else. Don't do what everybody else is doing just because everybody else is doing. You need to have some common sense. If there's some people who are doing some things that are wrong, some things that are hurtful, some things that are mean, don't just go with the crowd. That's what we teach our, our kids. And as they grow up, we hope more and more and more, they won't just go with the crowd. And when they need to be different, that they need to be different. But there's some problems here because if we read this, we go, God's not just telling them that you should be different. He's saying you are different. Essentially, we have standards. Don't be like everybody else. And you say... I get that, but this seems very exclusive, even racist. Don't be like the other people. Don't marry the other people. Don't mix with the other people. You're different. You have standards. And while you would say, I get that that's important that you should have standards and you shouldn't just go with the crowd, it seems uh, very much like one group of people here is being given preferential treatment and everybody else is kind of suffering with it. It's dangerous even in the sense of trying to learn this principle of being different, um, as important as it is, if we just stop there. If we just stopped at the place where we said, oh, we need to be different. We need to, to not just go with the crowd. Here's, I think, some of the, the threat of that. Although it's a lesson we have to learn, but hear what I'm saying. We're going to have to go beyond it. The, 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 the temptation we might have is if we stop there, we would become very judgmental, critical, self-righteous, proud, hate-filled, oppositional, hypocritical, rigid, unwilling to listen or learn from others. Do we become clear? If all we're about is just separating from other people and, and saying, hey, we're kind of, the, we're the good, holy people separated by God. They're the bad people who are doing bad things and we can't intermix. We have this, this great threat, I think, that makes us very hypocritical, very judgmental. Oh, we're the people who don't do, we don't eat this and we don't do that and we don't have sex, you know, with these people or in this way, we, we don't worship this way, we worship this way. and then we become kind of the separated people. Now, a lot of us would say, we get that. We can't just take that to uh, the lengths that therefore uh, we put ourselves on a pedestal and separate ourselves from everybody else. But then we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with texts like this? And I think what's really important for us is to take a step back and to look at the big picture. And what we're going to do when we do that is we're going to look at the, the big storyline. Because we have a danger when we read the Bible of sometimes taking out a certain passage, a certain verse, a certain theme, and making it all universally applicable. And unfortunately, this does great damage if we just kind of pluck out those verses out of context and out of the big story. There's so much damage can be done. And in fact, texts like this have been used and weaponized against certain people to abuse people and to hurt people and to tear people apart. And 
Christian people reading the Bible look back and say, but it's in the Bible. Look what God commanded Joshua. Here's these people who are doing bad and terrible things, so exterminate them. Here's people they shouldn't intermix with, and so they separate themselves. Here's people that are, are, are practicing uh, things that are, are, are bad forms of worship, and so we go against them. So if you look in history of Christianity, we have to own up to some things that are part of our history, where people have taken these kinds of passages and weaponized them against people. It happened in the Crusades uh, when Christians and entire nations considered themselves Christian nations went and fought against Muslim people. And they used texts like these ones that we just read in Joshua to say, well, we're doing just what Joshua did and we have to drive these people out and make sure they don't influence us. There's, um, in North America, uh, slavery, racism, segregation, was justified by texts like this. You're different. You're separate. And other texts that kind of build up that, that one race or one ethnicity. Hey, we're, we're God's people and therefore this is who we are and therefore separated from other people. Most recently in our Canadian context, and this has come to light um, more recently, but it's, it's not actually a recent phenomenon, but it's been um, just starting to acknowledge for some of us and even learn about uh, the way that, that settlers coming from uh, Europe treated the indigenous people in our Canadian history. And many justified based on texts like this when they came and found indigenous people who worshiped differently uh, and who lived differently at a different culture. They justified uh, taking away children from their parents, separating them, taking them into residential schools where abuses happened, where even lives were taken. And a lot of that came back to this and said, hey, we're a separate people and we found people who are different from us and we need to uh, take away their culture. We need to drive them out. We need to separate them. We need to make them like us. And in doing so, justified horrible, horrible acts against other human beings. And you say, how do we make sure that we don't do that and we don't become judgmental and critical and self-righteous and proud and hateful and fighting against everybody? What's the deal? How do we put this into a context that makes sense of what's in the Bible without getting to a place that I think most of us would understand that we are not supposed to go? How do we do that? And one of the things that I think has been really important in this series and for us to understand is that you, you can't just pluck verses and passages out of the Bible and say this is universally applicable. We have to see the development in Scripture. And one of the things that really helps us to do that is to draw back and see the big story. What's the story that connects us in our values? What's the story that, that, that ultimately tells us who, who belongs here? Who's part of this? Who gets to be part of the family? What are our values? What, what brings us together, right? It's those stories that we go back to that are so powerful to say, oh yeah, that's who we are. That's the foundation of our relationship. And in the Bible, we have to do that too. The context is so important so that we don't find ourselves weaponizing the Bible against each other. Because if you are doing that, and I kind of want to be clear and a little bit bold about that, if you are taking certain passages, texts, verses from the Bible and using them as weapons against certain people, individuals, people, groups, whatever, you're interpreting the Bible wrong. It's not how Jesus interpreted the Bible. It's not how he taught us to interpret the Bible. It's not how the apostles and the first Christians interpreted the Bible. Remember, Jesus' interpretation of the Bible is if we're doing it right, everything we find in here, every law, every rule should be pointing us to love other people as we express our love for God. And, and that's, that's how everything else comes into focus, which means when we come to really hard texts like this, where it seems like people are being separated and not super loving, we got to go, let's stop. And instead of just taking those individual verses, 
purposes and saying, well, there it is. We got to step out and say, what purpose does this serve for the bigger picture of loving God and loving other people? Now, what we see in the Old Testament is a lot of history and we see a spiral that goes inward. All throughout the Old Testament, we have, uh, for example, Abraham becoming a nation, the nation of Israel called out, as we see, to be separate, to be different, not to be like everybody else. And as that nation uh, evolves, they are called to kind of go inwards and inwards and inwards. By that, I mean, uh, we see that they come from sort of being uh, nomadic people. They come into the land that called, God called them into of Canaan. Uh, they build the temple in Jerusalem, their capital city where God calls them to. In the temple is the locus, the location of God himself, his presence. And so everything comes from being very wide, the big story through Abraham and Israel into the land, into Jerusalem, into the temple where God is. It, it, it's this, this big, uh, we go from big to a very specific Location, geography, place where God dwells. But in that moment comes the Messiah, Jesus. And what Jesus does is turns that spiral that was going inward, inward, inward to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the place of God, now takes that back outwards to the entire world. From the temple, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. This is a language we pick up in the New Testament and books like Acts where it says now it's not just about this one place, this one temple, this one city, this one nation. But now it's going to go uh, from Big to little to where we have the people of Israel to the Messiah. Now the Messiah is going to say, but the whole point of this, the whole point of all of this history and all of this bringing together and all coming, culminating here is to now unleash it back into the world. I'll show you what I mean in these stories that are powerful. Uh, one of the things that we get in scripture that a lot of people think is really boring is genealogies. You ever get to genealogies like a list of so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. We get them in the Old Testament. We get them in the Gospels, uh, Matthew chapter 1, for example, Luke chapter 3, the genealogies of Jesus. And they're ones that if you're reading through the Bible, often people skip them really quick because they don't really get it. But genealogies are powerful because they're not just lists of people. They're stories. And they're meant to connect whoever we're talking about. In this case, in the Gospels, it's Jesus with not just people that biologically are in his line, but stories that are foundational for who he is and who his community is. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. First line, who is Jesus? The son of David, the great king. Not literally the son, because David lived... Um, like a thousand years before Jesus, but in the lineage of David, the great king. So what do we pick up on that? The king that God had promised, uh, his line would always reign. Jesus is his ancestor. Jesus is the new king that will continue to reign. The son of Abraham. This is the story of Abraham. And this is really important because as we pick up on those passages in Joshua, where God is calling out Israel to be separate, which served a purpose because for uh, Israel to get where they needed to go, they needed to be drawn out and to be separate. But what's the big story? That might've been a specific time in history that served a purpose, but what's the big story? Well, Matthew wants us to go back all the way to Abraham. And here's the promise to Abraham. Here's the story of Abraham, which becomes the story of Jesus said, the Lord had said to Abraham, this is Genesis 12, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. 
all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Here's the big picture of story. And Matthew, Matthew wants to know, what, what's the big story? How do we interpret all the little parts of the story? Well, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Abraham was called to be blessed in order to bless the entire world, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth. I'm going to make you into a great family. I'm going to make you into Israel. I'm going to call you out to be different. I'm going to bring you to the land. I'm going to bring you to Jerusalem. I'm going to help you build the temple. I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to bring you the Messiah so that all nations will be blessed. That is the big picture. That is the big part of the story. When we read some of this stuff in Joshua and Leviticus about being different and separate, that is one part of the story, one small part of the story. And to be honest, sometimes a really hard part to understand. Why all this separation? Well, because God needed to separate out his people so that he could bring everybody together. But the real story goes back much, much further. The real story is a blessing for the entire world through the seed of Abraham. Who's the seed of Abraham? Israel, Jesus. And in the New Testament, we're going to get is the seed of Abraham is people of faith become the seed of Really people who live out their faith become the seed of Abraham. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 3, we get the genealogy of Jesus. And for Luke, he doesn't just go back to Abraham. He goes back to Adam. At the end of that genealogy, it says, uh, son of Adam, who's the son of God. And what do you get there? That we're all part of the family. We go back to Genesis chapter 1, where God creates uh, a man, creates woman in his image. He creates humanity, all of humans, in his image. And what Luke wants us to understand is that Jesus' story is part of Israel's story, but it's part of humanity's story. That we're all part of the same family. This is all of our family. And what's the big family story that brings us together? When God created a man and a woman in his image, what does it mean? We're all created in God's image. That's our story. What brings us together? We're created in God's image. Image bearers, whoever you are in the world. Every single person in the world created in God's image. That's where we start. That's part of the big story. The disciples, the apostles, the early Christians started to clue into this. One of the things in the New Testament, common themes in books like Acts and Galatians and a bunch of other places, is who really belongs and how do people belong to the community of faith? And many, most of the earliest Christians were Jewish because Jesus was Jewish and he started with his Jewish brothers and sisters and uh, he taught them and he brought them along and, and then they started to bring along people who weren't Jewish and the debate became, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> If you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to be part of the community, don't you need to become Jewish? After all, we're following these laws. You're different. You're separate. Don't be like these people. Come out. And so they're arguing. Don't you have to follow the law? Don't you have to become Jewish, convert to Judaism to follow Jesus? And in places like Acts and in places like Galatians, the writers are very clear like, no, 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 because that's not what it's about. It's not about becoming the same nationality or ethnic group. It's about the people of faith. That's how this story continues. That's how we belong. So listen to Acts chapter 10, where Peter, one of the apostles, figures this out. It says in Acts chapter 10, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by his four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter says, I follow the law. I'm a, I'm a Jew. 
and I follow the law and we're different and we're separate and we have food laws. And some of these animals are unclean and common and I'm not supposed to go anywhere near them because I'm different, I'm separate. I'm called to be holy. Verse 15 says, And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Verse 28 says, And he said to them, because he's, you know, they're having kind of these debates and he's, he's coming into contact with people who aren't Jewish. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. You know what the Bible says. Shouldn't we just follow this rule, universally apply that we are different and we shouldn't really associate and we shouldn't really be connected with these people who are not part of us. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. In other words, this was never really about the animals. All these animals were symbols to say, don't just go with the crowd. Be different. I'm calling you to be holy. And that applied not just to animals, but what about these people? And I've got to be separated. But now I realize this was something for a time. This was something in our history that was necessary. But this was not the ultimate story. The ultimate story is don't call any person common or unclean. That's why, thank God, we can eat bacon. Because <laughs> it wasn't about the pork. It was a symbol. Yeah, you're called to be different, so don't act like everybody else. That's a good lesson, but we have to go further. But as much as we have to take our values, as much as we have to, to, to not just go with the flow, we have to realize that we are part of a common story. There's no one who's common. There's no one who's unclean. There's no one that we should be able to say, I'm better than you. I come from a better place. I come from a better family. I come from a better ethnicity. I come from a better culture. The big story starts with Adam. It starts with every human being being created in the image of God. It goes through Abraham, who's promised that he'd become a great nation. He'll be blessed so that everybody in the world can be blessed. We have the story of Israel, which again comes into a closer and closer focus in the land, in Jerusalem, in the temple, to the Messiah. And then the Messiah says, now we got to make sure that we're, the whole point of this, the whole point of this was always to bless the entire world, every nation, people who come from everywhere and believe everything and have all kinds of different differences. And the genealogies and the story of, of the vision of Peter are all these stories saying, well, who are we really? Who belongs here? What are our values? And instead of picking those little verses here and there and the little symbols and getting so stuck on them, listen, when Peter said this, they would have said, but that's in the Bible. We eat kosher. It's in the Bible. It's a commandment. It's from God. Yeah, but there's development here. Let's take a step back and look at the big picture. Adam, Abraham, Israel, the Messiah, the entire world. This is the story that we all get to be part of. The big story is the Jesus story. The story of blessing the entire world and bringing it to renewal. So Peter continues and he preaches uh, what we have recorded anyways is a short but powerful sermon where he says this and I'm simply going to read it to you. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. 
As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Listen, listen. You can make the Bible say anything you want. You can find verses to justify terrible, horrible things. You can pluck them out of context. You can weaponize them against people. You can use them to be hateful and judgmental and proud. And, and uh, you can do horrible things and you can justify it by saying, the Bible says it and you can pick your verse and you can pick your passage. But if you do, you're interpreting the Bible wrong. Because Jesus said all the law and the prophets, all of the Bible is summed up in love. Love of God and love of neighbor. That's the big picture from Adam to Abraham through Israel and the Messiah into the New Testament where this message goes out into all of the world. What do we find in that story? We find a united humanity created in God's image. We find humanity walking away from God in sin. We find a God who relentlessly pursues people that he loves. We find the redemption through forgiveness of sins, victory through the resurrection, and renewal that is promised for all of creation that we look forward to. The big story that we're all invited to be part of is the Jesus story. And that's a story that you can be part of today. Maybe you never have been. Maybe you've been investigating Christianity and wondering about that. And I want to invite you today that you can be part of this by simply acknowledging your part in this story, your sin the way that you've walked away from God, but relying on the fact that he created you in his image. He loves you. He's pursuing you. Forgiveness is yours if you will simply ask for it and accept it. In the resurrection of Jesus, we find victory of the new life he's given to us and we look forward to a time where he renews all things and makes all wrongs right again. And that is the eternity that we live in. And if that's something that you want to talk more about or maybe a decision that you've made, I'd love for you to reach out. Uh, contact me. Send me an email at dave at westsidehamilton.com or contact us at the church. And we'd love to talk more about what that can look like in your life and how this story can become all of our story and how we live that out. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this big picture story, the picture of redemption, the picture of creation and recreation God, in the moments where we read uh, details of the story that are difficult for us to understand or, or even to agree with, would you remind us that at the core, uh, the foundation all the way down, is that you created us to be in relationship with you. That even though we've walked away, you've offered us forgiveness and restoration. And one day you will make all things right. Help us to trust in that so deeply that it changes how the way, the way that we live, the way that we treat each other, and the way that we worship you. And so we give you praise today in Jesus' name. Amen.